0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 a.m. News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Hello and welcome into the Thursday, September 19th edition of the Jeff Andrea Show. Got a good one lined up for you here today. Uh, in the back half of the show, I'll be speaking with the president of Thompson Rivers University, Mr. Brett Fairbairn, as the university continues to look at its next decade and what it has in store there. Envision TRU is moving into phase two with a couple of consultation sessions set for next week in Kamloops and Merritt. So I'll be talking more with Mr. Fairbairn about that at around 9.35. To end the show, I'm going to be talking with the president of the local steelworkers union Mr. Marty Gibbons had him on earlier this week prior to the announcement of 69 million that the uh, province had made for forest workers in support of of them and uh, obviously they're dealing with a number of uh, mill shutdowns and job losses and things along those lines so we'll get his thoughts on that 69 million dollars in funding that'll be coming up at around 9:50 but to begin today's show I am talking about the issue of birth alerts earlier this week the BC government announced it is ending the use of birth alerts effective immediately birth Alerts are a child welfare practice that has been used in provincial hospitals for decades. Alerts are issued without consent of expecting parents when it's believed there is a potential safety risk to infants at birth. I am joined on the phone by Jennifer Charlesworth, the representative for Children and Youth here in BC. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. Good morning, Jeff. So the province has decided to eliminate the practice of birth alerts. I guess, what is your immediate thought on that? Are you happy to see it go?
2: I'm very happy to see it go, and I commend the ministry and the minister and the government for making that decision.
1: Um, I mean, do you believe that there was a lot of discrimination when it comes to this practice in particular? I know that, uh, you know, that's one of the concerns that had been talked about with regards to birth alerts is that, you know, it seemed to target, uh, you know, certain populations more than others.
2: I do believe it did uh, target certain populations more than others, and most notably indigenous families and families living in vulnerable circumstances associated with poverty, substance use, et cetera. So I think that it did, it had a disproportionate impact on those who are most vulnerable and who actually need more supports rather than fear.
1: Um, And I guess what, uh, you know, you as a child and youth representative, I guess, what what can you do to support those families who have been dealing with, uh, you know, birth alerts and and maybe unwarranted ones as well? I mean, obviously there is some concern that maybe a lot of families weren't, uh, you know, or didn't feel that they were a a risk to their infants, but yet they still had been flagged as a possible risk. So, I mean, what what do you guys do to help support those parents who have been dealing with the situation? And and I guess uh, hopefully you have to deal with less of this moving forward.
2: Yes, hopefully we do have to deal with that less. Our role is fundamentally to support the child and the youth that are the subject of any of these kinds of um, areas of service. So in these situations, if a family member or uh, is concerned about the way in which government is approaching their loved ones or uh, protecting the child, then they can certainly contact us and our advocates who would assist them in understanding what are the best ways forward in terms of accessing supports within the system. Um, and I think really going forward, I also want to say too that the decision to remove a child is never taken lightly. I do believe that very strongly. Having said that, I think the birth alerts, what ended up happening was it created a situation where families were fearful often to ask Ask for help or to acknowledge that they were struggling and therefore out of the fear then the appropriate voluntary supports and services weren't able to be provided. So I think that the move will actually result in better services and hopefully less demand on our services in supporting uh, the well-being of kids and families.
1: Uh, Maybe you wouldn't be aware of any kind of numbers or things along those lines, but I guess, did you see a lot of instances where people were afraid to go to a hospital out of fear that they were going to be flagged as as a a risk to their children? You know, did you see any expecting mothers who were just, you know, would rather have their baby at home or or somewhere else because, you know, they were just scared of what might happen to their child if they did go see, you know, the, the professionals at the hospital?
2: What we saw more so were families that were afraid to ask for help out of fear that their children would be removed. Certainly that happened in the report that we issued um, called Alone and Afraid, which was issued in December, where a mom was in very vulnerable circumstances. The child had very significant special needs, but her fear of the child welfare system was so profound that she didn't access the services in a timely way. So that is something that we do see a great deal of. Of course, with these birth alerts, oftentimes the families that weren't even aware that there was a birth alert on their file Mm -hmm. because it could be done without consent. So oftentimes families were kind of well down the way of having uh, more intrusive measures before they were even aware that this was triggered by birth alerts and therefore we didn't see the numbers that you might expect we would see.
1: Here with Jennifer Charlesworth, the rep for children and youth here in BC, do you have any concern that the fact that, you know, this practice is being eliminated? So that's obviously a positive but do you think this possibly just changes the process now that instead of being taken from the hospital at birth you know it's just going to maybe take a couple more weeks to use some other tool to go about doing this same thing is there anything that's on your radar in terms of that
2: oh excellent question what's on my radar is what are the additional services supports uh, interventions uh that are going to be offered and made available to these families because as you say they, you know, if, if there aren't those kinds of supports, then it could just be a matter of weeks, and then the same kinds of removals could take place. However, I think the government has been saying that what they want to do is do more wrap-around preventive services to prevent the need for protective interventions or more intrusive measures. So that's what we'll be monitoring, is how are those additional supports being provided so that
1: families can stay together. I'll get you out of here on this one, Jennifer, but uh, I guess the the minister had made a comment that I heard as well, um, when the Minister of Child and Family Development, saying, um, you know, these birth alerts were never taken lightly, and, you know, it's always a serious situation when someone is removed from their parents. Um, When I hear that, though, it just sounds like you know, they're removing these birth alerts, but it was almost viewed in her mind as a a positive practice. So, I mean, do you have any concern when you hear stuff like that, when you're saying, obviously we need to eliminate this practice, yet at the same time, it's something that maybe should still be in place? I mean, when you hear authorities making those kinds of comments, it's sort of a double-edged sword here.
2: Right. Um, Yes, that could be seen that way, but really the birth alerts, there are a few things. One is it was disproportionately impacting Indigenous families or families who are vulnerable. Two, it was done without consent, and as a result of that, it created fear. And so when the minister says the removal of a child is never taken lightly, I agree, and it's it's been my experience that removals are not taken lightly, but the thing is that What's most important is to address the circumstances that could lead to a removal and be more preventive and supportive at the front end. If less intrusive measures have been applied, then, and a child is in significant risk, then. A safety plan needs to be put in place. Of course that's important. We would never want a child to be uh, consistently in an unsafe situation. So I think it's the front end work that's really necessary, and that's what I'm hearing a commitment to, and that's what we'll be monitoring going forward.
1: Well, Jennifer, that uh, wraps up our time, but thank you so much for joining me on this important issue. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much, Jeff. Take care.
1: You as well. That was Jennifer Charlesworth, the representative for Children and Youth in B.C. Coming up, I'm going to be continuing on with this subject, as I'll be joined by APTN reporter Melissa Ridgen, who broke the story of baby H. That's a baby born here in Kamloops that was taken from its parents just 90 minutes after being born. What has happened in that case over the last three months? We'll stick around to find out.
3: Your Opinion.
1: Continuing on from my earlier conversation with Jennifer Charlesworth, the representative for Children and Youth in BC, I'm joined now by APTN reporter Melissa Ridgen, who broke the story of a baby born here in Kamloops that was taken from its parents just 90 minutes after the mother had a C-section. New parents, of course, are an indigenous couple in their early 30s. What has happened since this incident occurred in June? Well, let's bring Melissa in now to share us the story. Melissa, thanks so much for being on the show today.
4: Oh, hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
1: So, so what is the latest that you can tell me here when it comes to Baby H? I mean, is is it still in foster care at this point in time?
4: She is still in foster care. Yes, um, she's now three months old, and she's been in five foster homes in her three months of life. The parents um, have visitation with her, but it's kind of sporadic and spontaneous. It's whenever the social workers seem to be able to coordinate something that works for them. The parents get. You know, the, the, a treat—I guess you could call it—of getting to see their own child. Um, so I've done a, I did an update yesterday uh, on aptn.ca because uh, I spoke finally with Minister Katrine Conroy, who I'm sure you know. I um, had announced BC government effective immediately these birth alerts um which flag uh mothers when they come into the hospital and are having a baby they're flagged by hospital staff uh to notify uh child welfare workers and oftentimes these uh lead to apprehensions so you're taking baby newborns from their mothers in the hospital and it's oftentimes on little more than we just have concerns about your fitness to parent mm-hmm. not like there's been an extensive investigation done it seems it's very arbitrary from the work that I've done talking to uh, mothers and other you know extended family members of, of people who have had their chi- their children taken from the hospital and this happens across Canada this is not specific to BC so but BC is to its credit is the first province to say we're ending this practice immediately. It's, it's arbitrary. There's other ways that you could, if there's a, a, a concern about someone's fitness to parents, if you can intervene early, you can work with this parent and find a whole bunch of other supports to help keep the baby in care, or sorry, in the mother's care. Mm-hmm. So my question to the minister uh, yesterday was, well, but what about all the babies who have been taken on these birth alerts who perhaps don't need to be in care? What was your ministry doing to get those children back to their parents and she didn't have an answer for that she kind of stood by the uh, the belief that these birth alerts only happen uh, or birth apprehension sorry only happen in the worst the most dire circumstances and I know that that's not mm-hmm. true because i've I've interviewed so many people where there there isn't uh, any indication that this child needs to be taken never mind that it's the worst case scenario that these children are in imminent danger baby h's parents are a prime example
1: yeah you think with an answer like that i mean if if that were the case then why are they even getting rid of birth alerts right if it's so uh, it's a good practice then what why are we removing it um bingo so I just want to keep continue on with the story of baby age specifically. I mean, I know you've been in, in pretty close contact with uh, the baby's grandfather specifically, I guess. what What is the yes. family feeling at this point? Is there a lot of anger or like how how are they doing it? Yeah. So that there's three months anger,
4: in? there's a lot, of the fr- a lot of frustration because so if you, when you're being mistreated by this system, which, and I don't even call it a system anymore, it's an industry, to be frank. It's, they take kids and it creates jobs and it creates work for everybody. The more kids you have in care, the more work you have. So there's frustration with that. But if you voice your frustration to your workers, like this, your foot dragging uh, at getting my child back to me, court's not happening fast enough, you guys aren't filing reports like you're supposed to, et cetera. You voice any of that frustration, you're labeled difficult. Mm -hmm. And then once the parents are labeled difficult, uh, the agency has grounds to deal with you less. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You have to just follow along like a clapping seal with all of the orders that they throw at you. Uh, No matter how ridiculous these things are, like lots of times it's you have to take these parenting courses, you have to take this, take that. And these things take a whole assortment of time because you have to register for them. And in the meantime, every day is ticking by that your newborn infant is in foster care. So people people get justifiably frustrated and upset with the pace of the process and the process itself. Um, But you can't ever voice that frustration because you get the label of being difficult or hostile, and then the system slows down even further for you. So There is some frustration with that on the part of the parents. The family had originally been recording all of their dealings with these uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development caseworkers um, the caseworkers started walking out of meetings if they if they were being recorded, they refused right. to have meetings with the family, which is I mean if, if you're not doing anything wrong, what do you care if it's recorded, of course. What do you possibly care? So, the family, yeah, the family's frustrated. I talked to the grandfather yesterday. He said, you know he doesn't know how the how the two parents are even keeping it together. Like they're just so exhausted and beat up by this process. Jumping through these hoops, being given the cold shoulder by the caseworkers. I've phoned the caseworkers myself. And I've oftentimes get um, I'm which goes direct to voicemail, I'm uh, not at work until further notice. What the hell, you've got my kid? Who, who should I deal with then? Like, I would be phoning every day if you had my child. Um, and to just be on a whim, not at work for weeks on end, and nobody knows how to get in touch with anybody so they can have visitation with their children. I mean, it's a broken system. And you could see how, how these parents would be you know, how are they?
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: How are they managing to get up and get clogging, clogging through every day? I, I don't know. I don't know if most of us could do it.
1: Yeah, I'm here with APTN reporter Melissa Ridgen. So just following that part of, of your conversation, I guess, I, I know when you were on here with Shane Woodford uh, in June, I believe it was, you know, you, you had mentioned mm-hmm. some of those things like the recordings, but they were being, from what I understand, very cooperative with everything that they were being asked to do to, you know, of course, yeah. have their child return to them. I assume that yeah. that hasn't changed over the course of the three months, but have you you been, ever, have they given you any update if they are any closer to having baby H returned?
4: There is apparently, there had been a, um, a court hearing where there's a judge had granted an extended visit. So it's like you can have your child all day and for an overnight. That apparently happened in August, but those visits haven't started yet, despite that judgment. So then the question is, well, what's the point of going to court if the court orders aren't being followed? You know what I mean? I think another thing I'll mention, too, just in case for your listeners who maybe weren't listening in June or following the story at the time, one of, I was talking about arbitrary, kind of ridiculous things that these um, social workers create for the family to have to do. One of them was to say that one of your parents has to live with you. Now, you're telling people in their 30s that their mom has to move into their house in order for them to visit their child, like so just, just arbitrarily pulled out of your butt that but this is something that has to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, the dad in this case didn't necessarily have an amazing uh, relationship with his mother, but of course, like, I want my kid back, so like, okay, I guess my mom's moving in with us. That blew up spectacularly within hours of her moving in. It was like there was some issues over who was actually the boss of the house. And I guess the mom was like, you know, if I have to live here, I'm in charge. And there was an argument of, well, no, you're not. We're the parents. And she stormed out. And so that collapsed. I mean, it shouldn't have been what a bizarre construct anyways for these social workers to just think up.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the situation has been unfolding over quite some time. It doesn't sound like it's going to really... Um, you know push along as fast as at least as the family would like and from from other, those outside watching i mean it's pretty frustrating here what's happening and uh, hopefully we can see some changes i guess i'll get you out of here on this okay. one here melissa uh, just in terms of the announcement that was made this week about bc eliminating the the practice of birth alerts i guess uh, obviously, mm-hmm. it's not going to help this current situation, especially when you had the answer that you did from from the minister here. Um, but yeah. what does the family think, I guess, about the fact that the practice <laughs> is being eliminated? Is there any, I guess, hope for for this not to happen well, to other people in the future?
4: Yeah. So the grandfather spoke to that, and he said, "You know, it's, I don't, I don't. It's going to help my granddaughter. They're not just going to admit that what they did was wrong and hand the baby back because." None of the agencies in this country ever admit that they did anything wrong. They fight tooth and nail to try to cover their butts. However, there are women across this country, and we know this to be true, that are having children outside of hospitals specifically because they fear that they will be flagged because they are Indigenous or because they, a lot of times, if you aged out of the system, if you yourself was a foster child, you will be flagged for a birth alert. So he's saying, you know, maybe there will be, there won't be this underground of women having babies outside of hospitals, that that you'll feel more safe and secure in going to the hospital and having your child, and he counts that as maybe something good coming out of it. Of course, other people say it's probably better to not have a a baby in the hospital, Um, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. Indigenous people believing that you should have kids at home and it being a more holistic experience. I, I don't know. So if there is a level of comfort with going to hospitals now and not fearing that you've got staff who are going to be calling CFS to flag you just because they look down on you, they don't figure you're educated enough, or they don't like the color of your skin or the look of you, whatever. If you don't have that fear of hanging over you that somebody can, in an instant, snap their fingers and your life will be changed and your kid can be taken, yes, that's a good thing. Yeah. But we'll see. I mean, these. it doesn't mean that there is... That there's, any fewer kids being taken maybe they don't just take you from the hospital fewer will be taken from the hospital right. it doesn't mean that they won't be taken weeks later from home so I guess, I guess we wait and see
1: yeah well it's definitely a situation we'll be continuing to follow and uh, of course for yourself keep up the great work and I'll be continuing to read your stories as well so thanks so much well, for I'm coming on the show I'm glad you guys show.
4: are following this too thanks so much
1: I really appreciate your time Melissa Okay, bye-bye. that was APTN reporter Melissa Ridgen coming up after the break I'll be talking with TRU president Brett Fairbairn
0: you're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL
1: 610 a.m. News Talk and
0: RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning and welcome back into the Thursday, September 19th edition of The Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Envision, TRU, is an extensive initiative to gather input into creating a vision for the university's next 10 years. Response to the first phase was strong, with thousands of ideas shared by people in group discussions on campus and in regional sessions sessions as well as online contributions as envisioned tru moves into its second phase thompson rivers university president and vice chancellor brett fairbairns encouraging the public staff students and faculty to continue participation it's also looking for newcomers to join the process as well here to talk about all of this is the man himself tru president brett fairbairn brett thanks so much for taking the time today It's a pleasure, thank you. So maybe just start by giving me a quick rundown of what happened so far in Phase 1. What kinds of ideas did you collect and, and sort of what's going to happen with that information?
3: Well, you know, since um, uh, the spring, really, in March, we began the project and we've had online discussions and small group discussions that have identified um, some important themes for TRU's future, as well as hundreds of really specific ideas that, um, that people think we should follow up on. So it's just a lot of thinking about what's important and what we want to make sure of as we move forward.
1: So when you talk phase one going into phase two, I guess, what what is the difference? What's the transition here and, and sort of what is changing from phase one to phase two?
3: Well, um, I think of it as a conversation that has a series of stages. So we don't just want to do an opinion poll or get a snapshot of what people are thinking on a certain day. It really is an opportunity to engage for people to say what they think, but then to hear what other people think and respond to it and really move uh, move their, their ideas along. So we've heard so far that there's things, um, I, and I, the way I'd characterize it is that there are things that will always be important to us at TRU, um, student success. Indigenization, um, sustainability, um, research. Um, so we have identified those as things we kind of want to to make sure of in the future. Those are our touchstones. What I want us to move to is also to talk uh, not just about the things that will always be important to us, that uh, that will you know never go backwards on, but also to think about what we want to do differently. And that's what we're uh, we're starting to get into this fall. So we asked people what was missing in those early conversations and what do we need to change up around the place that's where we want to end up when we're done
1: um so you've been in your position for about a year now i guess just how uh, you know big of a process has this been for you so far obviously this was something that you wanted to undertake to to help move the university forward i guess can you just talk about your course of your first year on the job and just sort of how important this specific project is to to what you're trying to accomplish
3: well, I, I think this is hugely important for TRU, and it's also really important for me. Uh, my job as president of the university, um, the best way I can put it is that my job is to talk to lots of people, to listen to lots of people, and to help um, influence um, the whole university, the community that it serves, to move in a common direction. So to do that, I need to hear from people, I need to know what they're thinking, and this process absolutely helps me with that in my first year on the job. Um, it's also a good time in TRU's history to take stock of what we've done, who we are and where we're going. Um, I heard that um, a year ago when I was in the search process um, and that it is an expectation of a university president to be able to talk um, in really compelling and inspirational terms about the university's vision and its future. So that's what I'm working towards.
1: I'm here with TRU President Brett Fairbairn. So when we're talking about looking at the next decade, I guess uh, you m- probably don't want to get into specifics, as I believe you are set to, to sort of unveil some findings later this year. Um, but just when you're talking about sort of general goals that you potentially could be looking at over the next decade, I mean, are you looking at potentially increasing the number of students who are attending TRU? I know that uh, when I say spoke to uh, the VP of Finance there earlier this summer, he had talked about, you know, maybe they're getting pretty close to capacity in terms of students. Um, Are you looking to increase the student body? Are you looking to, you know, provide new infrastructure so that you can continue to increase the student body or maybe just enhance the student experience? I mean, is there any sort of general um, topics that you're looking to accomplish here when you're looking
3: at this Envision TRU plan? Well, um, you know, we will get to questions of, um, um, you know, how many students, what mix. Uh, We're looking at that as well more specifically. But I'd say with Envision True, uh, what we're really interested in is making sure that we're serving uh, uh, communities and meeting needs. Uh, So that's kind of what it's about. Um, so is there, uh, is there a need for more students? Um, is there a need for more in different programs? In our region, um, um, you know, in the, the Thompson Caribou region, we serve a lot of people already who are looking for education. Uh, some of the gaps, I think, are probably um, Indigenous learners and uh, other groups we could identify. So in those respects, I think um, uh, looking for more students from groups for greater success in graduating students from, uh, from all groups those are things for, that I'm pretty sure that we'll focus in on. Um, more generally, I think it's really about uh, what, uh, what, uh, what will characterize how we do things at TRU. What's our distinctive approach to education? What's our approach to inclusion? Um, and research is part of that mix, too. What's our approach to engaging the region and the issues of the region?
1: Uh, I want to ask you specifically there about, uh, you know, Indigenous education because I know uh, TRU obviously has a pretty extensive um, rapport when it comes with international students Uh, and obviously there's a very good domestic population that's attending TRU as well. But when you're talking about Indigenous students and wanting to enhance their uh, educational opportunities, I guess, what are you doing to make sure that that population is a part of this process over, you know, forming what the next decade will look at at TRU? Have you been able to reach out to those specific groups to ensure that they
3: are, you know, included here? Yeah. Absolutely. So we currently have something like um, um, 3,000 Indigenous students among our um, 30,000 or so um, total students, so it's about 10% of our total, um, and that's a large number of students. Uh, We're committed to supporting those students to succeed and to graduate in professions, in trades, in fields uh, that make a positive impact in their communities and really contribute um, to the development of uh, of Indigenous communities and self-government government in the region. Um, so we have lots of programs that do that. Um, I think some of the things that stand out is we have our Coyote Project, which is engaging uh, faculty and students right across the campus to indigenize in all programs uh, right across TRU. We have our Knowledge Makers Project, which uh, brings together students doing research in indigenous communities with indigenous elders and faculty to, uh, to um, um, guide and validate their work. Um, and I think we do that within a context of um, uh, respectful relationships and partnerships and, and some of that is, uh, is my job in particular um, to reach out to and meet the leaders, um, the, the, the sort of government leaders as well as uh, traditional leaders in uh, First Nations and Métis communities in our region. Um, so those, that's a priority for me is to do that work. But our, our university as a whole is fully engaged across a wide spectrum of programs.
1: Um, And I know that there are two specific uh, in-person sessions set for next week. I'll I'll let people know where those are here at the end. Um, But just, I guess, uh, is there any other opportunities for people to have their say on what's going on? Or are these uh, in-person sessions the only one? I assume there's more opportunity
3: than just that. Well, absolutely. And what I'd say to anyone who's interested is have a look at the website because what I've uh, what I've asked the team to do that's uh, supporting the project is to make sure that everything is reflected on the website at uh, tru.ca slash envision. So upcoming meetings, reports from past meetings, records of everything, online discussions so people can sign up and, uh, and give their answers to questions online and rate answers from others. Uh, Um, uh, and find out what's happening and read uh, background studies and submissions. So everything is there on the website. Um, All the different methods of participation, people can see it there and see what's going on in the project.
1: And uh, just to to kind of uh, wrap up this specific conversation here, Brett, I guess what is your plan for, uh, you know, when you will unveil this uh, TRU or True Envision? Uh, Do you have a a specific timeline that you're working towards right now, a general timeline, or any ideas when we'll kind of see the full report?
3: Well, I will be looking to introduce the outcome of Envision True to our governing bodies at the university. So that's our uh, Board of Governors, our Senate, our Planning Council on Open Learning, um, and to have them have a look at it, um, and I'll cross my fingers and hope they'll give it their approval um, uh, early in the spring of uh, uh, 2020.
1: Okay. So we still got quite a bit of time here before we're going to see sort of what uh, what you have in store here for a while. So we'll look ahead Absolutely. to spring of 2020. And I'll just get you out of here on this, Brett, while I have you on the phone. It's been uh, almost three weeks now that school's been in session there at uh, Thompson Rivers University. Uh, just, just how are things going in a general sense there? Are things, uh, you know, kind of chugging along as expected at this point?
3: Well, it's wonderful, the energy on campus at this time of year, the numbers of students, the diversity of students, how excited they are and how involved they are. Um, you know, just yesterday we had our um, uh, the TRU Students' Union Pride Parade here on campus, and the noise and the smiles and the colours, and it was just wonderful to see. That's what September's like on a university campus.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Brett. I really appreciate your time. Uh, It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Awesome. That was TRU President and Vice Chancellor, Brad Fairbairn. And uh, as I noted earlier, for those looking to have some input into Phase 2 of uh, True Envision, there will be a session in Merritt on Tuesday next week, starting at 5.30. That's at 4155 Belshaw Street. And then on Wednesday, there will be a session here in Kamloops, starting at 4.30 at the Desert Gardens Community Centre. Coming up after the break, I have Marty Gibbons of the United Steelworkers Union Local 1417 back on the program. He was on the show earlier this week prior to the $69 million announced by the province to aid forest workers in the Kamloops area. So we'll get his reaction since that announcement has come down after that conversation that will be coming up after this.
0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM
1: News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here to the Jeff Andrea Show, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. Earlier this week, the province announced $69 million to aid forest workers in the Kamloops area as the industry continues to be hit by mill closures and just an overall downturn in the forestry sector. On Tuesday, I had Marty Gibbons on the program prior to the funding announcement. So now that it's out there, I am welcoming back onto the show the United Steelworkers Union Local 1417 President, Marty Gibbons. Marty, thanks so much for coming back on.
0: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity.
1: Yeah, it's a bit unprecedented for me to have someone on twice in a week, so you should feel pretty lucky right now. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I
0: certainly do. And, you know, I, I just would like to start out by saying, um, as you mentioned, I, I am the president of the United Steelworkers Workers Local 1417, and I proudly speak on behalf of the forest workers within our local union, which includes basically most of uh, um, your listening area. Uh, but I do need to be clear, I'm not speaking on behalf of the steel workers in general or other locals of the steel workers.
3: Fair enough. Um, but I
0: would, I, I certainly, I'm certainly glad to have this opportunity <laughs> because I, I definitely have some pretty strong opinions about the package that came
1: out. Alright, well let's get into it. So this $69 million, I understand that the details may be a bit thin at this point, but uh, the breakdown that was given was uh, $40 million for early retirement, $15 million towards short-term forest employment programs, $12 million for skills training and training grants, and $2 million for a new job placement coordination office. So, uh, I mean, what, what can you tell me about this funding as you know it at this point in time? How do you understand that it's actually going to work? Obviously there's a, a, a small breakdown there, but it's still, like I said, pretty thin on details.
0: So, so we as a local were not consulted prior to the government coming out with this. I have no idea if they consulted with the state workers generally, but as a local, uh, probably hit the hardest out of any local with shutdowns. Um, they never consulted us. But my feelings on this generally are are cautious, cautiously optimistic. Um They have put out a program without any sort of details. I, I've I've spent almost thirty years of my life. Uh, relate in working in the forest industry, and um, you know, I've been through the Community Development Trust, which sounds very similar to what they've come out with, with, with some differences. Um, some of the announcement we've heard that it'll be available to all. We also see in the announcement that it says displaced. What does that mean? Uh, we also see it'll be done in coordination with forestry employers, and um, kind of the feedback I'm getting from the forestry employers, although not on the record, they're not really sure what the government's smoking. Um, so there's a there's more questions than answers. Well, they actually put a meme on our Facebook page yesterday of a skeleton force workers waiting for, for details. And maybe that's a little unfair as the program did just come out, but a lot of our members are quite surprised that a program would be announced with, with so many questions attached to it.
1: Yeah, and then uh, it was also interesting to see that they were calling on the federal government to help. I don't know if that's necessarily the right time uh, right now to be asking the federal government for help when they are in the middle of an election. Um, talking yeah. about the $69 million, I guess, do, do you think this is even enough? So,
0: so so, well, you know, I'd like to talk. so had we been consulted, the, the the very clear message that they would have got from us on behalf of the workers um, would have been, forest workers don't want handouts. forest workers want jobs. Um, uh, we are very proud people. Uh, we are we are rural communities generally. Um, and this is, you know, this this is we're not we're, we're thankful for this and we're cautiously optimistic. But the real issue that we have to deal with and we have to tackle moving forward is how do we make our forest industry competitive moving forward? And that conversation has to talk about forest practices and stumpage. Um, and the one thing that I want to speak about quickly is 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 we hear we hear timber supply thrown up all the time as the reason why and this is horrible. Well, well let's talk about about West Fraser Canada. Um, West Fraser Chasm uh, produced approximately 2 million um, board feet of lumber. Uh, That was uh, annually. I encourage all listeners to fact check me. Um, You know, to put that into perspective, uh, that meant that they brought in about 750,000 cubic meters of wood into that operation that's now a vacant lot um, to process each year. To put that Further into perspective, based on a logging truck hauling about 50 cubic meters of wood, that's about 15,000 logging trucks that were going to that site. That site is gone. Those numbers are very comparable to our Clearwater operation. So when you think about it, we've had catastrophic reductions in capacity within our area. So I'm just not buying this timber supply issue anymore. When you talk about 30,000 truckloads of logs that, that are basically no longer going to these mills, combined, 15000 each, and those numbers are are, are averaged. Um, I don't buy the timber supply. You know, it, it's very difficult for me when, when the government's refusing to have the conversation about stumpage. Um, it's the most insane time I've ever been through. We have the liberal liberal opposition attacking the NDP government and the, for defending liberal policies that the liberal previous liberal government put in. It is absolutely insanity. But the bottom line is we need to look at stumpage. We need to look at forest practices. And it's hard for me to disconnect a reluctance to look at that stumpage when the government last year um, brought in close between $1.3 and $1.5 billion from stumpage fees. You know, we as forest workers um, are, are bankrolling this province, or a large part of it. And we need to talk about why these mills aren't running after we've just taken the hit we've got. There should be timber supply. The message we're getting from the employers is we got logs, we just can't afford to come down. And the system is broken and needs to be fixed.
1: Uh, here with local steelworkers, union president Marty Gibbons. So I, obviously you're continuing to push that message. Uh, you know, you had a similar point that you had made here on Tuesday. But I, I do want to just kind of focus on the on the funding that was announced, even though, you know, like I mentioned, details aren't uh, aren't the most uh, excessive at this point. Um, I guess, you know, it has only been a couple of days here, but I mean, what has the reaction been like for members? You talk about how people in the forestry sector just want to continue to work. They don't want handouts. Uh, but but what, what have they been doing? Have they been calling and wondering, you know, how this is going to impact them specifically? What are you able to tell them or what are you trying to tell them at this point in time
0: well we've been getting lots of phone calls from from workers that have lost their jobs from workers that are close to retirement thinking about retirement um we've gone through this program before and and it's just so difficult for us right now like i know there's a lot of even our own union has been out there saying how wonderful this deal is and and we're cautiously optimistic because we don't even know what this deal is yet we don't Mm -hmm. this deal talks about accessing other funds are those secured are those potential um, because like I said, I, I, as a person who's been in, in, um, many, many rounds of bargaining with forestry employers, uh, they're not quite as uh, quick to hand out cash as, as maybe the government is thinking they are. And I've also heard that, um, a comment off the record from the companies that said the government can take our portion out of the 1.5 billion they took from us last year. It's
1: definitely, um... An interesting situation that's going to be unfolding here over the next while. I guess uh, just one more question here. When we're talking a $40 million early retirement fund, obviously, like you had mentioned, forestry workers want to continue to work. But uh, I guess those who are close to retirement, assuming that this uh, $40 million for early retirement does come through as promised, um, I mean, that's got to be some good news for those who, you know, probably wouldn't necessarily be in a position to to find a new line of work or, or get another job just based on their age.
0: Yes, if, you know, there's so many what-ifs involved, right? Um, if, if they have room in the so first off, if you just take a retirement allowance, because bridging is actually kind of a different term, and I don't know if it's applicable here, but it's more of a retirement allowance to assist uh, people to retire. Well, if you have room in your RSP and you can bury some of that money, that's great. If not, you're going to be looking at 50% tax. Um, and and what, are the, what are the conditions? Who's in, who's yeah. out? And we are getting calls, and there's a lot of anger from our members, and unfortunately, for some reason, it's kept the president. Um, but it's, there's anger, and, and we're as angry and frustrated as them. As we can't give these people answers, these first rate workers have been so much through so much, and um, you know it's it's just tough going to these communities yeah. and not being able to give the answers. And I won't tell people. I will not um, uh, assume anything, because that is unfair. And until we get answers, um, you know, we just can't give anything solid.
1: Yeah, well, Marty, thanks again for coming back on the show. I appreciate your time. Unfortunately, it has run out, but uh, maybe we'll get you back on when more details are available.
0: I I am available tomorrow if you want to go three times in the week.
1: (laughs) All right, sounds good, Marty. Thanks so much. (laughs) That was uh, Marty Gibbons, United Steelworkers Union Local 1417 president. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. And if you missed something, of course, you can always listen to it on RadioNL.com slash podcast. And you can find full-length episodes on a number of platforms as well. So thanks again to all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all for listening. And whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.